Hello, and welcome to Wisdom of the Crowd, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Bertelsmann Foundation, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, and Are We Europe? I'm your host, Riley Munn, and in this third episode of Wisdom of the Crowd, we take a look at technology. Specifically, we'll hone in on the relationship between the US and EU in the world of tech and trade policy. We'll discuss how transatlantic partners are working together to tackle the biggest challenges in this field, including data privacy, artificial intelligence, and tech regulation. And we'll look at whether true collaboration is possible between the US and EU, or if their differences only hinder tangible results and progress. Our guests on the show today are Rob Atkinson, the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or ITIF, in Washington, DC, and Alejandro Kainzos, member of the cabinet of Margareta Vestager, the European Commission's Executive Vice President for a Europe Fit for a Digital Age, joining us from Brussels. The rapid pace of technological innovation has become essential to economic growth in both the United States and European Union. From everyday gadgets like robot vacuum cleaners to complex systems like ChatGPT, new technologies have transformed the way we live, work, and interact with one another, especially during the pandemic. But each new innovation comes with a set of challenges. Social media platforms are rife with hate speech and disinformation while the rise of artificial intelligence has led to concerns over mass surveillance and cyber attacks. To address these challenges, the US and EU recognize the importance of working together and established the US-EU Trade and Technology Council in 2021. The TTC has made strides in bringing European and American officials together on critical issues like sanctions against Russia after the invasion of Ukraine and Chinese economic aggression. However, there are doubts about its long-term sustainability and effectiveness at resolving more than the simplest transatlantic disputes, especially when the US and EU don't seem to agree on one of tech's biggest dilemmas, regulation. When it comes to tech policy, there tends to be one central debate, to regulate or not to regulate. Those who are pro-regulation argue that guardrails are necessary to ensure privacy and human well-being is prioritized in tech development, while those who argue for less stringent regulations say that innovation is the basis of human progress. We'll hear more about those arguments from our guests, but an example of this debate in action was when, in March of this year, a group of tech leaders and academics, including Tesla CEO Elon Musk, called for a six-month pause on development of AI systems known as large language models, like ChatGPT, for fear of its potential risks. But critics have claimed that this sort of pause will only hurt the industry and cause the US and EU to fall behind rival tech innovators such as China. The question is, how does this debate play out on both sides of the Atlantic? Can the US and EU agree? Despite their differences, initiatives like the TTC show that there is potential for transatlantic collaboration over the most pressing issues in the world of tech and trade. If you're listening and interested in giving your take on these questions, head over to Range, our transatlantic forecasting platform, where users and experts can chime in on the likelihood of future events happening. Currently, there are a number of technology questions ready for forecasting on Range, looking at the EU's Artificial Intelligence Act and the health of the information space on social media. Forecast today at rangeforecasting.org. Our first guest, Rob Atkinson, joins us today to discuss where the U.S. and EU align and diverge on tech policy and regulation. 
He is the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, a DC-based think tank where Rob has been closely examining the transatlantic relationship through the lens of technology and trade. He's here to explain the growing tech policy challenges facing the US and EU, and to share about the world of emerging technology and innovation, including artificial intelligence like ChatGPT. In your view, what are the main tech policy challenges the US and EU are currently facing? Yeah, hi, I'm Rob Atkinson. I'm president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. I think the biggest challenge right now is how do we get accelerated rates of digital transformation for the society? Everybody talks about this. Everybody assumes that it's happening a lot faster than it really is. But for uh, the U.S., we're pretty far behind in a lot of areas. For example, the use of IT and health. The Europeans are farther ahead than we are. Smart cities, the Europe is farther ahead than we are. Digital identities, Europe is farther ahead than we are. Smart manufacturing, both places. So unlike a lot of people who think the big challenge is a regulatory one, I think the big challenge for the U.S. and Europe is one about how do you get more uh, development and adoption of these technologies. Europe has a different challenge in the sense of its companies are farther behind than the U.S. We, we do pretty well with company adoption of IT. Europe is actually behind us. Uh, there's l- less adoption of cloud computing, less adoption of AI for both countries, both regions, I should say. The real challenge is to just accelerate the rate of IT adoption and, and, and deployment. And the reason I say that is that productivity growth in both regions is quite low, really at historic lows almost. And you know, the only way you boost productivity is, is through technological innovation and adoption. And that's the big challenge we're facing, I would argue. So right now, something that's on everyone's mind is the fact that the U.S. is potentially looking to ban TikTok. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about data privacy. Who gets it right, the U.S. or the EU? Or are we both still missing something? The TikTok issue really isn't about privacy. In terms of privacy, who gets it right? If we, if we compare the U.S. versus Europe, neither one of us gets it right. If this were Goldilocks, uh, Europe is uh, too hard and, if it, and America is too soft. The GDPR, which a lot of people reflexively praise, I think it was a mistake for Europe. Clearly, they needed a EU-wide privacy rule, which is good. But the problem with the GDPR is it's way too strict. There's good evidence recently that it's harmed the internet ecosystem and harmed startups who are trying to monetize eyeballs with ads. So if I had to pick one right now, I'll take the U.S. system. But ideally, the U.S. needs to adopt a national privacy bill, a law, which we're in the process of hopefully getting that done. But I hope it's a law that is more balanced than the GDPR. The right privacy law is one that allows the use of data for good uses, responsible uses, but also gives individuals uh, the right to opt out of data collection. So I don't think either country gets it right, but I would rather have the U.S. system because I think it's better for innovation. Do you think the U.S. and the EU can move closer to tech policy convergence, or are we just drifting further apart? After all, the U.S. and EU tend to work at different speeds, as you said, when it comes to tech policy, and they may have different priorities. Well, I think, you know, six, eight, ten years ago, there was a lot of openness and and interest in in Brussels and in other capitals to really figure out what's the best way to thrive in the digital economy. I feel that's really disintegrated. Europe has adopted this view that they're going to lead in the digital economy by having the most and 
harshest regulations. So with the Biden administration having interest and alignment more on the European side, I think that the tensions now are are, are muted somewhat. But if we were to have a Republican Congress in the Senate, for example, or a Republican president, I think the conflicts and the tensions will flare up significantly. I think the fundamental approach of Europe is just different than the fundamental approach of the U.S. We're willing to have open trade with Europe where Europeans don't seem like they want to do that. So I don't think the relationship is going to get better. I think it's going to get worse unless the EU is willing to compromise somewhat. They've made up their mind. They've made their bed. And I just don't think it's in the U.S. interest. So the question is, how do we how do we live together and how do we not have that disrupt uh, too much trade and, and, and investment? Speaking about the trade relationship between the EU and the U.S., do you think that Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, known as the IRA, plays a role in how this relationship is changing? We did a little piece where it showed that European government procurement from American companies versus American government procurement from European countries, we buy 13 times more as a share of GDP from European companies than they buy from American companies. In reality, their procurement is very restrictive to the continent and even to their own countries. Secondly, they're running a $200 billion trade surplus. They talk a lot about how European markets are open, but frankly, in a lot of ways, they're not open. So I think that the question on the table needs to be, how do we move forward together? But at the same time, we need to have a more balanced trade relationship with Europe. What, what I find really frustrating is we're running a $200 billion trade deficit with Europe, and yet we're running about a $2 billion trade surplus in digital. You know, they're like, oh, we need digital sovereignty. Uh, digital sovereignty, to me, basically digital protectionism. Let's just be honest about it. And yet the Europeans are always saying, you know, Americans are the protectionists. Well, then if you want that, then you can't have restrictions on data flows. You can't have domestic cloud computing preferences. Europe complains on the one hand, but on the other hand, then they do this digital protectionism. Would you explain to me what the TTC is and how it first came about? Well, the TTC is the Trade and Technology Council. And it was uh, uh, established as a high-level effort uh, between the Europeans and the Americans to basically have a place to have formal dialogues on a whole set of issues that relate to transatlantic trade issues that relate to technology. One of the key reasons why the TTC is important is that in the face of the China challenge, which is both, which is an economic challenge, a national security challenge, but it's also a, a technology and values challenge. It's very important for the U.S. and Europe to minimize their differences and begin to cooperate more effectively to counter the China challenge. And that's in part what the TTC is trying to do. The TTC gets a lot of criticism for being a good platform to establish shared goals, but some say it struggles to produce tangible outcomes. Could you name some benefits and issues with the initiative? I think potential problem or problems with the TTC is it's 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 kind of an inside club. Uh, it, it's only recently that it's been opened up a little bit to outside stakeholders to have input and 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 visibility, if you will. So I think that was a mistake from from day one. They should have had it be more open and and uh, and, and engaged with more more dialogue with stakeholders. You know, one of the points they make, which I think is a good one, is because of the relationships built in the TTC, when the Russians uh, invaded Ukraine, they were able to mobilize an export control regime very quickly. And that seems to be a benefit of the TTC. 
So I think what the TTC is doing is it's it's basically a way to have dialogue around low-hanging fruit. So I'm glad it's there, but it hasn't made the progress, I think, on resolving some of the core issues. Now, the reality is that maybe that's not possible. Uh, you know, the, the Europeans seem pretty pretty dug in on, on all this. They, they seem to be not even willing to have an open dialogue anymore. Now, I suppose they would say the same thing about Americans, maybe, which uh, maybe it's a valid point and maybe that's where we are. But I'm still somewhat hopeful that there's an opportunity to really get some compromise on some of these issues. Do you think that the TTC will be effective in the long term? It depends what you mean by effective. If you mean make significant progress to resolving a lot of these core differences that we have, no, I don't believe it will be. If you mean smoothing off some of the sharp edges of some of the conflicts and tensions and resolving some of the easier ones, then yeah, absolutely. I think it could do that. Now, just pivoting a little bit more towards emerging tech, what are your thoughts on AI like ChatGBT and other emerging technologies? Do these have any implications in the geopolitical space? You picked a bad day to ask me that question because yesterday, a, a group led by Elon Musk sent out a joint letter to call for, I think it was a 90-day or some level of no more AI research on large language models, which is what ChatGPT4 is. We found that astounding, disturbing, awful. They actually made references in there to eugenics. What possible connection is there? So I say all that because I think if you ever follow this, there's the Gartner hype cycle. So the Gartner is a technology advisory group, and uh, they come up with a hype cycle every year. And it basically pick all these technologies that are currently in, in play. And they, they say, where are they on the hype cycle? And we're at peak hype with chat GPT, peak hype. I don't believe this is an intelligence system. It's pretty fun. It's pretty cool. It can do important things. I get it. But it's not intelligence. You know, the fact that I can go online and I can say, hey, write me an article about uh, about the TTC, and it'll do that, but won't be a perfect article. I think people need to slow down, take a deep breath, let the technology emerge. And I think there's way, way too much excitement, way, way too much panic about it. These technologies always take longer. At the beginning of these things, there's just so much excitement, so much hype. It's going to do all this. And finally, people realize, well, wait a minute, it can do this. It can't do that. And then it comes out like, okay, here's just what it's good for. And I think that's what's going on with, with large language models right now. My number one suggestion was slow down. You just don't know enough to regulate. We don't know enough to say, what are they going to be the challenges? Are there going to be challenges? I mean, one of the advantages of large language models is they're mostly going to be done, if not all, by big companies who have an enormous stake in getting it right. So Microsoft has a set of AI principles. Google just came out with a big memo yesterday on that. Big companies in Europe and America, they have every incentive in the world to not get this wrong because they know the reputational harm for them will be massive. And that goes to this broader question of if we're going to regulate AI, how should it be done? And I think the Europeans are making a fundamental error because they're regulating the technology as opposed to the application. I think what we should be doing is regulating application. So, for example, in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration has said, if you have AI in a medical device, it has to be regulated. Of course, because medical devices have to be regulated. 
if you're using AI uh, or some kind of machine learning uh, approach to give someone a loan, well, that already is regulated. We have the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So I think that's one of the big dividing lines is do you want to regulate the technology, which is what Europe wants to do, or do you want to regulate the uses of it, which I hope is where America is going? What you were saying about the similarities in explosive new technology in the early 20th century reminded me of that explosive comment that the Google CEO, Sundar Pichai, said about AI. He said, AI is one of the most profound things we've worked on as a humanity. It's more profound than fire or electricity. I was wondering if you agree with that. I do not agree with that. Electricity is a general purpose technology. So if you think about pretty much everything we do is enabled by electricity. We could be in offices with with whale oil lamps right now. Uh, we can't have the internet without it. I mean, think about electricity. It's just everything. I don't think AI is going to be that. I think it's going to be, look, don't get me wrong. It's not a minor little thing. It, it is a big thing. But I think there's a real risk of, of overinflating it. And the reason I say that is because one of the big challenges with AI is the counter-reaction, the Luddite counter-reaction, which we saw yesterday with Elon Musk and these other, quote, scientists. It's like, this technology is too dangerous. We have to stop it or slow it down. We're going to lose all these jobs. I mean, how many jobs is, 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 is are large language models going to kill? The answer is not very many. And what I worry about with that is we have we should be doing the exact opposite. We should be accelerating the rate of innovation and adoption. Again, because if you look at Europe and the United States, we face two big problems that are interrelated. One, high levels of old age to young people dependency. So in Europe, there's a lot of old people. In America, there's a lot of old people who aren't working. How are we going to pay for that? The only other solution to that is to raise productivity. In other words, the workers who are working just produce a whole lot more so the old people can have it. You can't do that without technological innovation, and AI is going to be an important part of that. So that's what really worries me is rather than putting the pedal to the metal, which is what the Chinese are doing, let's be honest, the Chinese are, the pedal is to the metal. There's nobody in China who's going, let's put a three-month ban on AI research. In the US and Europe, we need to have that, I don't mean the same attitude of AI governance, don't get me wrong, but the same attitude about, hey, AI is important, we should advance it as quickly as possible. Now for our final question. When you take a look at the state of technology innovation and policy, what is keeping you up at night? What are we missing? The main thing that's keeping me up at night is China. The U.S. is getting better, a lot better on, on that, recognizing that challenge. Europe is maybe five years behind us. And what I mean by the China challenge is China has made it quite clear that they have a very uh, high-level goal of becoming the leaders globally in every single advanced industry. Uh, there was a recent report from an Australian think tank that looked at a whole lot of 30 different technology areas, and I thought it was interesting that they were ahead of us on something like 26 of those. So that's what I really worry about. We have to find ways to prevent China from unfairly uh, taking advantage of, uh, of the West uh, through their programs of stealing intellectual property, massive subsidization, closing their markets. So I think what Europe and America have to do, and this is why I wish the TTC would, would do this, is they really have to come up with a common joint strategy 
to make it less profitable for the Chinese to engage in basically economic and technology predation. That's what they're doing. Their goal is to eliminate Airbus. Let's be honest. Their goal is to eliminate Volkswagen. Their goal is to eliminate um, uh, German robotics companies. And I think they have a good chance of doing that unless we respond. So that's what keeps me awake at night. Let's welcome our second guest on the show, Alejandro Kainzos, and he brings his expertise on international tech policy and security. Alejandro's here to discuss EU and U.S. approaches to tech and trade policy and share his concerns about the rapidly changing digital world, including the growing threats to cybersecurity and the impact of AI. My name is uh, Alejandro Kainzos. I'm a member of the cabinet of Margaret Vestager. She's Executive Vice President of the European Commission uh, in that role in charge of, let's say, everything digital as well as competition policy. And within her cabinet, where I've been working for the last three and a half years, I cover all the international aspects of her portfolio, basically everything that has to do with the geopolitics of technology, including the EU-US Trade and Technology Council, among many other formats and engagements that, that we do, and I'm also responsible for uh, cybersecurity and, and defense industry. In your view, what are the main tech policy challenges that the transatlantic community is facing today? There is a very wide range of challenges. The main challenge for the transatlantic community is to stay at the forefront of technological innovation and the digitization of our economies and societies while at the same time being able to show that we can do so under a framework that upholds our rights and freedoms, our social cohesion, our democratic integrity. I think it's it's clear that for now, probably the US has been better at the former. The EU has been better at the latter, but probably collectively we need to do better uh, at both. When it comes to tech regulation, is anyone getting it right, the US or the EU? What is working well and what are we still missing? Well, I don't think anyone can claim that they get it fully right. If you think about the, the speed of change in technology is such that, that regulation will always have a hard time keeping up. So this, this creates the challenge of finding the balance between having too prescriptive regulation that risks quickly becoming obsolete or in the other extreme, too vague regulation that is difficult to, to implement in practice. So what we we have come to find in, in the union is that you, you really need to try to find that sweet spot of having solid principles-based regulation at the same time, uh, a strong and flexible enforcement capacity. I can certainly say that we're trying, but there uh, maybe the, the U.S. a little bit further behind. One case that's been in the news a lot recently is about how governments should regulate TikTok. And it's clear that there are some differences between the U.S. and EU. What would you say about this? I think this is an interesting example uh, in terms of the EU and U.S. approach uh, to technology. If you look at the debate in, in Washington around TikTok, it's essentially a geopolitical question. The difference here is in the EU, we have a legal framework that is already in place, uh, and that allows us to deal with each of those issues on its own merits. So when it comes to cybersecurity risks, um, so we've, we've banned TikTok also on, on commission devices. When it comes to privacy, we have the GDPR, where there are two ongoing uh, investigations by uh, data protection authorities. And when it comes to issues around 
mental health or uh, disinformation. Uh, we have the Digital Services Act, which of course still needs to be uh, rolled out. So all of that to say that, of course, even if we have the same concerns and the same diagnosis, the difference of having a legal framework is that you can deal with them in a more uh, targeted way, because it seems to us that because these tools don't really exist in the in the U.S., you find almost an, an almost binary debate about banning or, or divesting as opposed to status quo. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing a lot of debate going on right now about strategic autonomy in the EU, and I know that there is an element of tech in that. Could you talk a little bit about that discussion in the EU and whether or not strategic autonomy from a technology perspective is possible or even worthwhile? In the Commission, we, we tend, tend to use the phrase open strategic autonomy because the aim uh, is certainly not to, to close ourselves off uh, the rest of the world. The aim is to be able to ensure that the key decisions that you know, will shape uh, our economies and societies as we digitalize so swiftly uh, will be taken within our democracy. And, and that is easier said than done. And I think it requires both investment uh, in innovation so that Europe can, in some cases, stay at the forefront, in some cases, catch up with the forefront. And it also uh, requires uh, determination when it, comes, when it comes to regulation. Can you give me a European perspective on the Trade and Technology Council, or TTC? Some say it struggles to produce tangible outcomes. What are your thoughts on this? Could you name some benefits and issues with this initiative? Well, as with everything, I think judgment will depend on someone's expectations. You know, having said that, if you think about the short time that it has been running and the immense complexity of the area it covers, I think we can be very positive that it has already been able to create the first tangible outcomes. Uh, so to give you some examples, if you think about the export controls that were swiftly agreed uh, upon Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, it shows that the TTC can respond to uh, urgent events. If you think about the agreements that we uh, announced uh, in December last year on semiconductors, which include an early warning system for uh, supply chain disruptions, as well as a transparency mechanism for uh, subsidies, uh, I think this show that we can each do industrial policy in cooperation rather than in uh, a dangerous uh, subsidy race to the bottom. If you think about the development finance projects that we've announced jointly in uh, Kenya and Jamaica, and we're now looking at other areas where we can do this, it shows that we can have a joint impact elsewhere in the world. If you think about the uh, AI roadmap uh, that we have agreed on how to translate our common principles in terms of ethical and uh, development of AI, this can be a template for other emerging technologies. So, so I think we have produced progress, tangible progress. Uh, there are proofs of concept, and of course, it could be better, it could be faster, and we'll, we'll try our best. So the critics, I would challenge to find other international cooperation forum for on, on technology that has been able to produce more concrete outcomes. Those are really good examples. Looking ahead at the next TTC meeting, what do you expect to be on the agenda? What might the outcomes be? So the next meeting is going to take place at the end of May, on the 30th and 31st in uh, Luleå, which is in the north of Sweden. It is a very interesting uh, place because you will find there some of the most innovative companies when it comes to the green transition in terms of uh, green steel and other 
green industrial uh, products, clean tech supply chains. So it's quite an interesting venue. And I think hopefully it will inspire us to achieve positive results, including in the area of, of the green transition. It's a bit early to tell you what the outcomes might be because there's still six weeks to go. Uh, but I think you should expect progress in addition to the green transition also on uh, emerging technology issues. So I expect 6G to be an important area. And I think the priorities we've seen so far, such as AI and semiconductors, they're still very relevant. Uh, and, and I think will be, will be high on the agenda. So you focus on security and cybersecurity in Vestiger's cabinet. I'm curious, how has the rise of digital technology impacted foreign policy and international security? Perhaps we can look at the current war in Ukraine as an example of this. I think you're right to say that technology has played a key role in, in Ukraine, uh, not just in a military sense, of course, but also it is clear to us that the war has had a pretty crucial digital component. So whether it is the, the cyber attacks uh, that have accompanied the military a kinetic attacks, so to speak, um, as well as all the disinformation campaigns, but also the support campaigns through the use of social media, the ability to provide government services to people that have been displaced. Those are just one some of the many aspects that have been part of the war. And I think uh, in, in the union, we've fully integrated those concepts uh, into our security and defense strategy, which is the, the strategic compass adopted last year. Uh, I think to us, the resilience and frankly, the innovative methods of, of the Ukrainian government have been highly impressive. But there are also many things that we are learning from, from the Ukrainians. And Ukraine has worked with the private sector to organize its, its defense in the cybersecurity space. And, and we want to do something similar in the union by creating what we call a, a cyber emergency reserve with uh, trusted uh, private sector providers. Now pivoting a little bit, what are your thoughts on emerging technologies like 6G? AI like ChatGPT and others, do these have implications in the geopolitical space? They certainly do have strong implications in the geopolitical space. Uh, one, one might even argue that they are at the center of geopolitical competition at the moment. As, as I was saying before, the challenge for us uh, as the union as in, in, the in a transatlantic context is, of course, to be able to show that we can provide a good model, uh, the best model when it comes both to innovation, but also to protecting people's rights. And I think what we have seen on, on AI recently, the concerns coming out of the tech community itself in terms of the need for guardrails to protect the, the basics of our democracy, the basis of our rights, that gives us a responsibility to be able to formulate a, a, a clear answer. Of course, there is, a, there is a certain race where everyone wants to get there first uh, and we all want to innovate. But we need to still ensure that these standards will become global and interoperable because nobody wants to go back to those times when you had to change phones to travel from one continent to another, right? I think there is this balance uh, that is inherent. Uh, we, we want to defend the open internet against versions of it that are closed and controlled. But at the same time, we don't want uh, an open internet democratic on the one side and a closed one on another. I think that's also... Not, not in the interest of our, of our universal values. This is a reminder that fighting for, for a global open internet uh, needs to remain an objective for all of us. Earlier on, you mentioned the EU's desire to foster innovation. There are some experts, including our first guest on the show, ITIF's President Rob Atkinson, who say that certain regulations actually cripple innovation. So what are your thoughts on this? 
Can tech innovation thrive with strict regulations? Well, I, I would certainly challenge that. I think that regulation can take many shape or forms, but I think it's it's a false choice to say that either you innovate or, or you regulate. You will find that the most innovative state in the United States, California, is also the most regulated. Uh, if you think about innovation, the best way to get innovation is if you can have large markets with a lot of uptake. If you want uptake, you need trust in technology. And nowadays, you can sense already a certain backlash. People want guardrails. People want to know that their rights are protected online just as much as they had been before offline. We need to learn the lessons of the past. We, we know by now that technology is not going to be democratic. It's not going to be human rights enhancing on its own or by design. It will need intervention from uh, those who have been elected to regulate uh, to do so. The other side of this argument, though, is that policy and regulation often struggle to keep up with fast-paced tech innovation. That's why some leaders have called for a moratorium on AI models, like the letter signed by Elon Musk in March. I talked with Atkinson about this. Do you think policy can keep up with the current lightning speed of tech innovation? I think that's a legitimate concern, and I think it is a challenge. But that shouldn't keep us at home (laughs) and not try What that letter shows is that there is a concern that if we don't have the guardrails up front, we might reach a level of technological development where whatever we break is just too precious uh, and and just can't simply be repaired. I think from from that perspective, uh, I think we we don't think that a six-month pause or anything like that is is, is the solution. If innovators in, let's say, in the West stop for six months, I don't think anyone else in the world will. Uh, they will still be coding in, in China and elsewhere. So what we do in, in the EU through the AI Act at the moment uh, that we're, we're debating is, is that we don't try to regulate technology. I think that, that would be completely futile. What we try to regulate is the use cases of technology. So what are the kind of uh, requirements that, that you need to have in order to use technology for specific purposes and what are the rights that you need to protect. And in doing so, the technology will change and we see how it changed so fast, but the, but the principles will be there. You talked a lot about the potential damage for AI. What are some of those damages that AI can cause on society? What are some of the problems that AI could create long-term? Well, first of all, I, before talking about damages, one needs to acknowledge the, the huge potential benefits, right? whether it is for health, whether it is for better societies, whether it is for more efficient work, whether it is for better cities, for fighting climate change. When we talk about the risks, I think the most crucial one is is the risk to fundamental rights. So the the risk, of course, that AI is used in a way that, that suppresses our rights or our freedoms is there. If you think about the cases where AI has discriminated against people because of their background because of the postal code, ethnicity, etc. Of course, the risk that there will be pernicious effects of, on, on society. So these are the types of fundamental right risks that, that, that we look at and we try to address through, through the AI Act. And now for our last question, when you look around the world, or for you, it might be when you look at the state of tech innovation and policy, what is keeping you up at night? What might we be missing? Well, I'm fortunately a good sleeper myself, but that is not to say that there, are, there aren't things that worry me. I mean, one of the fears, of course, is 
that we don't come up with the answers in terms of, of the appropriate guardrails to emerging technology before it's too late. Another danger I see is that kind of the workforce adjustments that are needed to any technological revolution don't happen fast enough. But the pace now is so fast that it's hard to see how we can do it sufficiently quickly. We already have a massive skills gap in terms of um, basic and advanced digital skills to be able to make use of the technology, but also the disruption that it can cause in the in the labor market uh, if, if it's not well managed uh, can be huge. And all the social, let's say, the, all the social tension, polarization that, that those things can create is, is, is another worry. That brings us to the end of our third episode of Wisdom of the Crowd. Thank you again to our guests, Rob Atkinson and Alejandro Kainzos, for sharing their expertise on the world of technology policy. For the next episode, we'll be exploring the topic of geopolitics. Specifically, we'll be taking a look at one of the looming and most expansive geopolitical challenges, space. From the space race of the Cold War to the privatization of space exploration under companies such as SpaceX and Blue Origin, the region just beyond our atmosphere has always been highly contested. Who will set the rules in space? How are satellites and aerospace technologies already being used to gain geopolitical advantage on Earth? And what comes next? These are the questions that we'll be answering in episode four. We hope you'll join us for that discussion. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Range. Range is a crowdsourced forecasting platform focused on issues critical to the transatlantic relationship like China policy, climate change, technology, democracy, geopolitics, trade, and economics. Try your hand at forecasting by signing up as a forecaster at rangeforecasting.org. We'll put this link and other relevant links for this episode in the podcast description. Wisdom of the Crowd is produced by the Bertelsmann Foundation, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, Are We Europe, and Awe Studio. Sound design for this episode was done by Stefano Montali, with editing by Nahal Sheik. Research was done by Daniela Rojas Medina and Anthony Silberfeld. The podcast artwork is by Tamara Tosic, and this series is hosted by me, Riley Munn. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay tuned for upcoming episodes. See you next time.